Today's message is the last bit of the book of Luke, uh, entitled, He Was Parted From Them and Carried Up Into Heaven. It's uh, been exactly five years since we started uh, the book of Luke. It was January, the first Sunday in January of 2017, that we began the book of Luke. I think I saw it some 220 sermons later or something like that. So praise be to God for His Word. And you know, we're just moving right along like we've been doing right into the book of Acts because it's really one vol- it's one book in two volumes. So as I read the Scriptures today, as we read the Scriptures together, we're going to start at verse 44 of the last bit of the book of Luke. And we're going to read through to verse 14 of Acts chapter 1 as we continue to move through God's Word. Let's stand together. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then he said to them, These are the words from which I spoke, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Chiasm. You heard me talk about the very beginning when we looked at Luke and Acts and the structure of the book of Luke, the structure of the book of Acts, the literary structure, the Hebrew literary structure placed by Luke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as you recall, when you look at the end of the work and the beginning of the work, there's going to be these parallels, and these parallels are going to continue until you get to the very center point of the message. And here we are. The center point of the message of the Luke-Acts two-volume book is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are there today to look at that. Praise be to God. And we can also say, looking at history, that the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is also the turning point of history. Ever since that day, when the devil was defeated and Jesus Christ was made the king over all the universe, the enemies of hell have been on the run. And the kingdom of grace is steadily advancing ever since then. Jesus Christ is the victor of history. So we get to look at this today, praise be to God. And we've been caught up in this as his people, this forward advancing march of the kingdom of God, which we see in such glory, uh, the power aspect of it beginning in today's text. You know, last week we looked at the events of the 40 days. I think it's good to just kind of recall those kind of in bullet format and get into the momentum, if you will, of what the disciples had been experiencing Of course, there was Resurrection Day, which we've called the first Christian Sabbath. You recall that was a Sunday, if you will. They didn't call the days that then. But taking the calendar back, it was a Sunday. It was the first Christian Sabbath. And they saw Jesus on that day. He demonstrated himself to people alive on that first Resurrection Day. And then on the the second Christian Sabbath, eight days later, Thomas believes after seeing Jesus. Remember, we looked at that in John chapter 20. And then in Matthew 28, 16, the disciples leave the Jerusalem area and go up to Galilee like they were commanded to do. Jesus told them to do that. And then we see Jesus in John 21 up in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias with his disciples. That wonderful breakfast by the sea that we talked about. Remember, this is the Sea of Galilee, probably Tiberias, the city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, Remember how we speculated it's so close to Mount Tabor? Maybe that's where Jesus met with his disciples because we know he told them to go to a mountain that is unnamed in the text. And then next we see Jesus. And again, we can't be dogmatic about the order of these things because the scriptures don't tell us for sure. But we definitely see in Galilee what is called the Great Commission where Jesus tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And then he commands them to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything He has commanded them. And He gives this wonderful promise, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we're going to find out on day 50, on Pentecost, exactly what that looks like. He said, Unless I go to the Father, the Comforter will not come. But the Comforter comes. Jesus still dwells with us. And then, in some uh, instance, he was seen by over 500 of the brethren at once. We don't know for sure if this occurred in Galilee or after, he had come back, after they had come back to the Jerusalem area. <laughs> but in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul tells, there was 500 of these people at once that saw the risen Christ. And some of them were still alive at that time. Corinthians written in the mid-50s. So we're looking at about 25 years later. These people are still alive. They've been telling everyone, I'm sure, I saw him alive. And then finally, James, the brother of Jesus, sees him in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. We're told that his brother had seen him during this time frame. So these are the things that have been happening leading up to this time frame. He'd been teaching them. He'd been instructing them. He'd been showing them, giving him them infallible proofs that he was alive. And as we saw there, and we'll look at again in the future, not only infallible proofs that he was alive, but teaching them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's what he was doing. So we come to this Ascension Day. Now there's three scriptures that I'll read to us that um, I think likely all occur either here on this Ascension Day or very close to it. One of them we've already looked at. We had a whole sermon on this section here from 44 to 49 in Luke chapter 24, but we'll look at those again and we'll also do it along with these two other scriptures that occur very near that same time frame. And we'll try to get a sense in our minds what had the disciples just experienced? What had they just learned? How had they just been convicted as they're then up with Jesus going from Jerusalem to Bethany? What's on their minds? So here we go. Verses 44 through 49. <clears throat> then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Mark 16, verses 14 through 18. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had sent him after he had risen, who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And then in Acts chapter 1, which we've heard already, but I'll read it again. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let's put this all together. They were rebuked. Jesus had rebuked his disciples because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Because they did not believe the resurrection reports that were brought to them. So even here, on this last day, or close to this last day before he ascends, he still needs to rebuke them because of some kind of lingering hardness of heart. Perhaps he's just looking back and rebuking them for how they had been. 
But in either case, this warning comes, this rebuke comes right here close to the time of his departure. Next, we see this great and wondrous illumination of their minds that Jesus accomplishes. He opens his disciples' understanding so that they can comprehend the scriptures. This is something every single person needs. If we're going to understand the scripture, we must have God open our understanding to it. He does this for them at that time. And all of the things that he teaches them are correcting multiple misunderstandings because they didn't understand who the Messiah was and what he was going to do. And now they did. And they realized that they're looking at him. Jesus talks to them about the fulfillment, the necessity of the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Specifically, that the Messiah must suffer and die. That was nonsense to them. He corrects that. The Christ must be resurrected the third day. Now they understand. Death and resurrection are essential to the messianic victory over sin, death, hell, and the devil. And also specifically that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. So now he's beginning to reference the things that are going to occur when he is at the Father's right hand. The things that are going to occur as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon his people, which the Bible, you and me, we are called the body of Christ in the earth. We continue by going forward, doing... We we see in Acts chapter 1 where he talks about all the things that Jesus did and taught. We're going to see the body of Christ in the earth doing what Jesus did and teaching what Jesus said. And that's what we do as well. Jesus defines the saved as he who believes and is baptized. And I think this belongs within the category of the repentance and remission of sins being preached in his name to all nations. So that his disciples are getting an understanding of what the process of salvation looks like for, these, for the Gentiles, for the whole world. And, specifically, that this preaching should begin at Jerusalem. So it's not limited to the Jews. It starts with the Jews. But it ends over the entire globe. And it is a, mes- a message of the remission of sins and repentance to all nations. Now, he commands them to preach to the whole world. He calls them his witnesses. Jesus tells his disciples they are his witnesses to testify of his death and his resurrection to the entire world. He commands them to go into all the world and preach the gospel in Mark, he says, to every creature. Maybe someone preached to the animals. We are told to take the gospel everywhere. And then Jesus speaks of the promise of the Father. He tells his disciples that he... Jesus will send the promise of the Father upon them. They will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this event is perhaps the hallmark of the New Testament age of grace. is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit whereby Jesus Christ dwells within every single one of the people of God. Unlike the things that we read of in the Old Covenant, unlike the Old Dispensation, it's different now. Now, there's two kinds of baptisms that are compared in this text. They're contrasted. 
There's water baptism. He references John's water baptism. And then he talks about God's Holy Spirit baptism. And it'll be important as we go through the book of Luke because the, the doctrine of baptism comes up over and over again in the, book of Luke, in the book of Acts. And we'll be looking at the surrounding epistles and the words that are written about baptism. And it'll be important for us to distinguish in the text, is this water baptism? Is this Holy Spirit baptism? Is it both? As we read and study the texts. He tells them to wait for power. They have all this information. They know who Jesus is at this point in time. They've been rebuked. They have the faith. They see him for who he is. They have the commandment. You would think it's just time to go. No. They have to wait for power. Knowledge apart from power will get you killed. Knowledge with power, you will go forth. You may still get killed, but you will go forth in power and see the work of God as you do His will. They were told to wait because they, we all have to learn this, that we have to rely on God's power. The arm of the flesh is nothing. You've preached the gospel to people before. I'm sure you may remember even in your own life hearing the gospel. And it was like two billiard balls bumping into each other. Nothing changed, right? So may God bless us to wait for Him and may our lives and our words be by His grace filled up with the presence of His power as we do His will. Now, they must have been wondering what's going to go on and in in Mark 16, it's almost as if maybe they had asked, what do you mean the power? Because he gives a description of some Powerful things that are going to accompany those who believe. And notice it's not just the disciples. It's those who believe in Mark 16. They will cast out demons in Jesus' name. They will speak with new tongues miraculously. They will take up serpents. They will not be harmed by drinking poisons. And they will heal the sick. These are the signs of power that will accompany those who believe. That will accompany those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Through the outpouring of the promise. And finally, they're curious about the timing. This isn't a big adventure that's coming. And they ask about the timing of restoring the kingdom of Israel. They're still kind of a little confused, it seems like. Or maybe not. Maybe they're just curious about Israel as, and Israel's role in the global plan of God. But Jesus redirects them. This is not for them to know. It's not for them to know. Those things are in the Father's authority. And so they're okay. They just go forth because the Father sent the Son. And the Father and the Son will send the Spirit. And they know their job. And they'll go do it and trust him for the timing. So, by the time that our Lord and his disciples arrive at Bethany, on this great, great day, Jesus has delivered to them all they need to know to continue as his body in the earth, teaching and doing all the things that Jesus himself had been teaching and doing. Their minds have been awakened to who Jesus Christ is. In all the fullness of the Old Testament messianic promises, He's walked them through the whole Old Testament and demonstrated Himself to them in the Word of God over and over again. And they get it. And they understand this is that man. They now understand and believe in the necessity of a suffering, crucified, and resurrected Messiah. They get it. They see that now. 
And hearing Christ's rebuke, they've been brought face to face with their own unbelief and hardness of heart, their own need for him to work in them so they can understand and believe the truth. Because Jesus did come and solve that problem for them by his mighty power to give them faith in his word, faith in him. Faith to believe what he's saying and then understanding that follows from that faith. Now while they're still focused somewhat on the kingdom of Israel, they are not aware, they're now aware that Christ, this man before him, that he is the Messiah of the whole world, not just of Israel. That's another key transition in their understanding. They've received his commitment to go into all the world and preach his gospel to every nation, to every creature. Starts at Jerusalem, but it's not just for Jerusalem. They get this now. This is on their mind as they're walking, as they're traveling from Jerusalem down through the Kidron Valley, back up the Mount of Olives, across the top or maybe around the side, over to the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives as they come to Bethany. And now they have greater understanding what Jesus has accomplished as the Messiah. What does death and resurrection mean for all mankind? For all the peoples of the earth. Their Messiah's death has accomplished the remission of sins for all who believe. They see. This is why we preach remission of sins. Because he's the Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They get it. They're marveling. The universal human problem of sin has been conquered by their Jesus. The one they had just eaten fish with by the Sea of Tiberias shore there. Their Jesus is the Savior. He's not just the one to free them from the political tyrants of the earth. Oh, He is that too. But He brings freedom from the dark, slithering, supreme tyrant, Satan, and His kingdom of darkness. And therein lies the source of all freedom, all justice, all family health, all marital health, all ecclesiastical well-being, all cultural well-being, all political, national peace. It all starts here. The forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't stop there. His kingdom gospel proclaims freedom from sin and then entry into a life of power. That's When you see the word repentance, you should think, power. Remission of sins. Christ died on the cross the Father poured all of His wrath on Jesus instead of on you and me. And in His resurrection, we see the power for us to live lives of repentance. Not just at the beginning of our Christian life, but all the way to the end. The turning away from the kingdom of sin and darkness, that repentance where we say, I will not follow my sin. I will not follow the devil. I repent of the kingdom of darkness and I turn and I go to Jesus and I say, I will follow you, Lord Jesus. I trust in you. And that path, that's just the beginning. It's a day-by-day increasing righteousness of walking in Christ's kingdom. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called. Remission of sins and repentance are to be preached to the entire world. And it's a timeless message because nobody has ever repented all the way through and through. So as they're marveling over this limitless victory and their global mission, they can also wonder what kind of power will come upon them from heaven as the Father's promise is poured out upon them by the Father and the Son. They're leaving Jerusalem behind them, 
Jesus has been crucified there fairly recently. They've run away from that place. They go down through the valley of the Kidron Valley, a, a place with a, a shady history, and they're coming up, and on their mind is the whole world. And Rome and Israel are like right there, immediate threats to them. There better be a lot of power. What will the Holy Spirit of God accomplish in them and through them? What will, it, what will he do? Well, they had already experienced power to cast out demons and to heal. We know that from Luke. God has given that power already. But now he's going to distribute that power to all who believe. In addition, we also read now that they will also be able miraculously to speak in other languages. And I'll tell you now, that's my understanding of the whole tongues debate. When we get, go through it in Acts. Is that God gave to his people the miraculous ability to speak in other languages. And that accelerated the gospel across the whole known world. There were no language barriers. <clears throat> and they will also survive poisonous snakes and potions. We'll talk more about that as time goes on. You can probably think of some examples in scriptures. And the timing is fuzzy to them too as they're, as they're walking over there. Well, when is this going to happen? They know he'll return in their lifetime to destroy rebellious fallen Israel, but when will Israel be restored to its kingdom? Because remember, when we looked at Luke 21, we understand that they understood that all of these things that Jesus predicted was going to happen in their lifetime, in that generation. This major upheaval of the land of Israel and the surrounding world, even the entire Mediterranean, and all the, the things that would be fulfilled in that time. And they knew that Jesus would come back and destroy Jerusalem and Israel like he said he would do. This unmatched man, none ever before, none ever after. There can be never anyone like him ever and ever. Praise be to God, he needs walking beside them. And they, they understand this. What were they saying? What were the looks on their faces? I think of Peter and his denial. And here he is with Jesus, right? I think of John, his closest friend, right? And the marveling that he must have been going through as well. Uh, they had seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had, they had seen him walk on water. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen him cast out all demons. They had seen him heal every kind of sickness. And now they're walking with him from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And he has told them what the whole world is about to experience. So the text tells us he led them out as far as Bethany. Now this is one of those scriptures that's very loaded. It's a very loaded scripture. Bethany means house of affliction. Uh, out of affliction comes fruit. Because it can also mean house of dates or house of figs. And the idea from the name of the city is that it is out of affliction comes fruit. And it's just more clearly though, just the house of misery is what Bethany means. But there's a suggestion that, hey... It's not just meaningless misery. The house of dates or the house of misery is how the Strong's Concordance defines it. Matthew Henry says, There he had done eminent services for his father's glory. This is about Bethany. So he's been there before. And his disciples had been there before. And there he entered upon his glory. There was the garden in which his sufferings began. There he was in his agony. And Bethany signifies the house of sorrow. Those that would go to heaven must ascend thither from the house of sufferings and sorrow, must go by agonies, 
to their joys. Acts 1.12, we have a sense of the distance that's traveled. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So this is after the ascension. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Bach tells us the Sabbath day's journey probably is a distance of anywhere from about 9 to 1120 meters, about three quarters of a mile. Other commentaries I looked at said it may be as many as, as 2,000 yards. So it's a Sabbath day's journey, which was, means that, that was a, an important distance uh, because it defined how far you were allowed to walk without breaking the Sabbath. Now, this is not telling us it was on a Sabbath. It may or may not have been, but this text here does not claim that it was a Sabbath. It's just using that as a distance marker. Bethany is on the Mount of Olives, as you've heard me say. It's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, if you can kind of put the geography in your mind. And so you'd have to come from Jerusalem down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and then come around, because when you go up the Mount of Olives, at that point you're on the western slope. You'd have to come around the mountain to be on the eastern slope. The location of this departure into heaven is seemingly different from that in Acts 1, the Mount of Olives. This is what Bach tells us. But this consideration is not decisive. Bethany is on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So this is a very uh, special place for Christ. A number of events are connected to this place. It was there that Jesus lodged during the Passover week. You see the scriptures there. While staying at the home of Mary and Martha. So that was Mary and Martha. Whose brother Lazarus he had raised from the dead. So that's where that happened. Some great memories there. He was anointed there by Mary at the home of Simon the leper. So there's a lot of beautiful things that happened in Bethany. And you remember he wept because of what was happening there in the events surrounding Lazarus' death. He wept. Of course, they're traveling down the valley and up. I got a little picture here for you in your notes. That's from the early 20th century. Now this is looking across from the Mount of Olives side across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount. And you can see the Temple Mount there in the background and kind of get a sense. Those are all people there visiting the graves. You can kind of get a sense of the dimensions and kind of what the lay of the land would have been for them to walk that distance. Imagine the time they had walked this the last time. Perhaps they'd walked it, but the last time that we really looked at them walking this path from Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives, do you remember? The night of his betrayal and arrest in Gethsemane, how things had changed. That night and the things that transpired and the memories that would be associated with that are completely transformed as they make this walk now. Everything is different. They go through the Kidron Valley on their way from Jerusalem to Bethany. Think of it. They go from mountain to valley to mountain. And they're traveling from west to east. All of these things in Scripture have symbolic meaning for us. The Kidron Valley, uh, the place name means turbid, dusky, gloomy. Deep ravine beside Jerusalem separating the Temple Mount and the city of David on the west from the Mount of Olives on the east. The spring of Gihon lies on the western slope. The Garden of Gethsemane would have been above the valley on the eastern side. Cemeteries have been located in this area since the Middle Bronze Age. Now, Old Testament events happened in this time. And you recall, we talked about this when we looked at Christ's triumphal entry when he came down from the Mount of Olives and he crossed the Kidron Valley 
on his way in as the triumphant king. We looked at these same events then, but we'll go through them again just real quick. David crossed the brook when he fled Jerusalem to escape from Absalom. Solomon warned Shimei not to cross it or he would die. And here certain kings of Judah destroyed idols and other pagan objects removed from the temple area. So it was a place associated with the destruction of idols as well. And after the Last Supper, Jesus went through this valley on his way to the Mount of Olives. So, they passed from Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of the temple, the city of God's presence, the place of his revealed mercy, down through the valley with, this, with its shady past, back up onto the Mount of Olives to Bethany, this place with this name of sadness and very sad events, and yet a place of hope and friendship. This place called the house of misery or the house of fruit from affliction. So think of it. The king is leaving Jerusalem. This is his throne. This is his place. And he leaves. And the next time the city sees him will be his terrifying visitation and the events surrounding AD 70. The Lord had departed Jerusalem before shortly before Judah was defeated and taken into Babylonian exile. Did you know that? And when the Lord departed Jerusalem in that day, listen to how Ezekiel describes the Lord's departure from Jerusalem in that day. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. There's nothing ambiguous or vague or even meaningless in what Jesus is doing here. He is sending a message to Jerusalem and to his disciples about the nature of where he's leaving from and where he's going. Today's text, we see Christ our Lord departing from Jerusalem and standing upon the mountain on the east side of the city, the Mount of Olives. Now, there are fascinating historical reports of the glory cloud leaving Jerusalem and standing on the Mount of Olives prior to the judgment coming upon Israel in AD 66. Kaiser says this, There are three ancient witnesses to that glory cloud leaving the temple on Pentecost day of A.D. 66, landing on the Mount of Olives and possibly resulting in the split in the Mount of Olives that you can still see today. But that was a supernatural testimony that Israel would be abandoned to judgment. God very literally stood upon that mountain. It was his personal presence to deliver his people. Eusebius The early church historian seems to refer to this event as an apologetic against the Jews, saying that God's Shekinah glory left them and went to the Mount of Olives precisely to show God's favor upon the church. For Eusebius to say that seems to indicate that this was common knowledge. God's favor leaving the Jews and coming to the spot where Jesus had ascended from, demonstrating the transfer of the favor of God from apostate, rebellious Israel onto the continuing church, the remnant, the faithful. Pastor Kaiser also believes that these 8066 events are likely the fulfillment of what we read in Zechariah 14.4, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. What is the temple called but the footstool of God? So when God moves, his feet move. So in Ezekiel and Zechariah, when God departs Jerusalem and instead stands upon the Mount of Olives, once before the destruction associated with the Babylonian captivity, and then again 
in association with AD 70, which had not occurred yet at this time, but the scriptures were in place. This is a signal to the Jews. Beware. Judgment is coming. So even as Christ's ascension in the forefront openly displays, shows forth our total redemption, the good news of His people being delivered, it also alludes quietly to the coming judgment destruction of apostate Israel. And this will be an important theme for us to remember if we're going to understand a number of different things that are taking place throughout the course of the book of Acts and as we look at the epistles that were all written prior to that destruction. So what does Jesus do? He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. So they have arrived at that particular spot chosen by our Lord for his parting. He lifts up his nail-scarred hands, the ones that Thomas had insisted on touching, the ones that they had all seen, those wounds that are still visible, because we're told in Revelation 5 that he is as a lamb who was slain. Our king wants us to know of his suffering even now. Because that's the kind of king he is. Showing them his favor, he assures them of his presence with them forever and of their place in his heart forever. He loves them. He's not going to forget about them. His heart will be ever full of them. His love for them and for us. And that's so beautiful because this is the beginning of his great high priestly work in heaven. The ironic blessing comes to mind, doesn't it? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's fulfilled here in this moment. Jesus giving that to them and to us in that blessing. And he still holds out his hands and he still blesses us and he never will stop. And we are the recipients of that still to this day. Amen. Hallelujah. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Listen to Matthew Henry. What was the farewell he gave them? He lifted up his hands and blessed them. He did not go away in displeasure, but in love. He left a blessing behind him. He lifted up his hands as the high priest did when he blessed the people. That's in Leviticus 9. He blessed as one having authority, commanded the blessing which he had purchased. He blessed them like Jacob blessed his sons. The apostles were now as the representatives of the 12 tribes, so that in blessing them, he blessed all his spiritual Israel and put his father's name upon them. He blessed them as Jacob blessed his son, like Moses the tribes at his parting, to show that having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. <clears throat> Bach says, Jesus' last act in the gospel is his commanding his disciples to God's care and benediction. God is watching over them. He is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this begins his heavenly intercession. This begins the constant blessing for the people of God. Don't, don't miss this moment. Jesus with his hands raised up and the smile on his face. Number six coming true as the high priest blesses them and the whole world in him. And he's still doing it. Think of him 
as your great high priest. Remember this moment as he was ascended, brought to the throne by his father, not just as king, yes, as king, but also as our ever interceding priest. Now, there's a thing that's a part of this that I don't want you to miss. The leaving during the blessing shows us that Christ is always blessing us. He began blessing us all at his ascension. And it continues forever. They watched him all the way up. And the whole time, he's blessing them. His favor. You know, in my family, when people leave, um, and we're waving, we're waving, right? That's what I'm talking about. You're waving. You're waving. You're watching. You can still see them. You're waving. And sometimes, if you know the layout of our driveway, they'll like run up through the woods to get there and to keep waving to you. That's what we're talking about here. And we're still connected to our Savior by His Spirit in ways that are even superior to what it was like for them as they gazed and watched Him disappear into the clouds. Matthew Henry says, not as if He were taken away before He had said all He had to say, but to intimate that His being parted from them did not put an end to His blessing them. For the intercession which he went to heaven to make for all, his is a continuation of the blessing. He began to bless them on earth, but he went to heaven to go on with it. Christ was now sending his apostles to preach his gospel to the world, and he gives them his blessing, not for themselves only, but to be conferred in his name upon all that should believe on him through their word. For in him all the families of the earth were to be blessed. So what happens next? Now it came to pass while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So Luke records for us that Jesus parts from his disciples in the midst of this happy communion with them. Unbroken. All is well between Jesus and his disciples when he's parted from them. There's no, he didn't leave while, Jesus, while Peter was still in despair. This parting is not like the ones reported after his resurrection either. Think of those which were abrupt and shocking as he would kind of suddenly appear and vanish from their midst. It wasn't like that. This is gradual, with smiles and joy as he fades from view, with blessing and favor. And they watch him in joyful wonder until he is out of view. Isn't God wonderful? I mean, he didn't have to do it this way, right? But he gives us this wonderful story of what these apostles, these doubting denying, confused people went through with him. Acts 1 puts it this way, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, can you imagine that? Wouldn't you be, would that be a good way to describe you if you were there? I think I'd be looking steadfastly towards heaven as well. What's going to happen now? God is good to them. Send some angels. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. There's work to be done. Now's the time to start. Okay, what do we start with? Well, we're going to get to that. Let's look at this idea of Jesus being carried up into heaven. Christ leaves the house of misery. And he, he leaves his disciples in the house of misery. And you know we live in the house of misery. This earth. This earth is the house of affliction. Now, the gospel of grace, the kingdom of peace, is conquering 
and changing. But that's a great name for this place where the demons of hell are still here and where sinners like you and me still hurt each other and bad things happen and dreams are destroyed and disappointments plague us and our hearts are broken over and over again. I will tell you, for me, I can say, yeah, this is a house of misery. Jesus left them in his blessing. They would need his blessing. We need his blessing in the house of misery, don't we? So he goes up to his eternal house of glory. But you know, he's still suffering with us. Isn't that beautiful? That his suffering is being filled up in our suffering still. Our Savior, he sympathizes with us. When you are broken, your great high priest feels it with you. Hallelujah. So where did he go? He went to the place of intercession at his father's right hand, in his father's bosom. Even now, dear brothers and sisters, he's still there. And he's interceding for us. See, his mind isn't limited. Like, have you ever tried to pray for a bunch of people at once? I don't know about you, but that's a good way to fall asleep. Not Jesus. Not not Jesus. He's not stretched by that. He's constantly interceding for his entire bride and for each one of us individually before the Father on our behalf. And the Father hears him over and over again forever. Now look, another thing we see here is the vindication of Jesus Christ. He is fully vindicated in this event. In all that he said and all that he did, everything that he said and did, proven true in his resurrection, but further proven true in his ascension. Like if he'd stayed on the earth the whole time, there were some things that he said that would not have come true. He's now our great high priest, but he's also now our reigning king. Both of those things coming into place when he went to his father's right hand. Praise be to God. Bach says there's something different about this moment. Jesus' blessing is not a normal benediction because of what follows. While he's blessing, he departs. The numerous Western paintings that show Jesus' hands raised in blessing as he ascends, that attempt to depict what Luke describes. Luke's the only one to portray Jesus' departure to heaven. Did you know that? The only one to actually portray it, to give a description of what's happening. Luke's the only one. The act is a vindication of Jesus, for it represents the fulfillment of the prediction made at his trial when he said, from now on, the Son of Man would be seen at the Father's right hand. Oh, you think I'm blaspheming. You think I'm saying things I shouldn't say when I'm the Son of God, right? Like, he's in heaven, and these people were denying that he had anything to do with God the Father, that he was blaspheming God the Father. Jesus is the Son of God, fully vindicated. And he told them, you'll see me at the Father's right hand. They didn't believe him, but it is true. Going on with Bach, he was convicted and put to death for making an offensive claim, but the ascension shows that the claim was true and that the execution was unjust. The claim of sonship was not rejected by the Father. Rather, the Son was received to the Father's side The ascension is testimony to Jesus' mediatorial authority. Let that sink in. His ascension is testimony to his mediatorial authority. Mediatorial. Between God the Father and all the earth. He is the mediatorial king and priest over the entire earth. The evidence of the presence of such authority is the Spirit's outpouring as Peter's speech about the witness shows us. And we'll look at that in Acts 2. The ascension is not just a departure. It is also an arrival. The ascension may be the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, but it is the beginning of his heavenly reign and the precursor 
to the initial distribution of salvific benefits. So the throne of David was occupied that day. Okay? That's where Jesus went, to the eternal throne. That throne is called an eternal throne. You do know that. That's the eternal throne. Another idea I want us to think about, the verb carry points to power working upon Christ. It is not as if Christ is propelling himself into heaven. That's not really what the sense is. Well, what's happening? The father's ready to see his son. The father who had turned his back and who had seen him suffer to accomplish the mission, he's ready to see his son. He's ready to have him close again. It's confusing, I know. So the father brings him. His father who raised him up from the grave is now raising him up from his humiliation and his house of misery into his house of total glory and full exaltation and joy at his father's right hand. Mark 16, 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. Now Mark goes on and he says, and sat down at the right hand of God. Psalm 110. You might know that, uh, that psalm. <laughs> the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This started that day. So we know the beginning and we know the end of Jesus' reign. The beginning is here. The end is after all of his enemies have been placed under his feet by his Father. Because he's seated. His Father is placing all of his enemies under his feet. Everyone throughout the earth. That's what Jesus is doing. The enemies of God are on the run. So how did the disciples respond to this? Right? So there's three things that we'll look at. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. That makes sense. This word worship means to kiss the hand. It means uh, it's, it's high reverence. To fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead is an expression of profound reverence. So it, it has often to do with where your body is. In the New Testament, it's by kneeling or prostration. Such adoration may be appropriate for how we are to treat some of our superiors from time to time. But this action points to the disciples worshiping Christ as their God. Their Messiah is their brother and their Lord, and he is God. Co-equal with Jehovah. They understand this. Matthew Henry says they paid their homage to him at his going away to signify that though he was going into a far country, yet they would continue his loyal subjects, that they were willing to have him reign over them. Christ expects adoration from those that receive blessings from him. So their worship, you know, is flowing from the blessing that he'd given them. He blessed them. And so in token of gratitude for which they worshipped him. So their, their hearts of thankfulness overflow in words and deeds of worship. And praise to him. This fresh display of Christ's glory drew from them fresh acknowledgments and adorations. They knew that though he was parted from them, yet he could and did take notice of their adorations of him. The cloud that received him out of their sight did not put them or their service out of his sight. Do you believe that Jesus Christ can see you? It's kind of nice, isn't it? To know that when we praise him and we lift up our voices to him in song and we live our lives before his presence that he, he notices. Does he need a nap? Does he ever, you know, I guess 
take a time out. Not our Jesus. He sees always. So what happens next? So they worshipped him. What happens next? The disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy. It's easy to pass over that. They gladly and immediately obeyed. They could have gone anywhere. Jesus told them where to go. They gladly and immediately obeyed Christ's commandment to wait in Jerusalem. And he had told them for not many days to wait for the promise on high, the Holy Spirit of God. And as they obey and wait, what's happening? They're filled with great joy. Even though just over a month earlier, they were terrified to be in that same place. Things are different when you know who Jesus is. Note, joy is the inevitable fruit of seeing, knowing, and loving Jesus Christ for who he really is. It is an absolute, unassailable, invincible, 24-7, every day of existence, maximum of life. That if you are not joyful, then you are not focused on Christ. The solution is not any of the things that you might think it should be in terms of the current situation that you're suffering through. The return of your joy is always to stop looking at the problems that are assailing you and come back like the disciples did and gaze at your Lord. Consider the gospel. Consider the remission of your sins. Consider the life of repentance that He has given to you. Consider the eternal life that is yours in Him. And the things of this world will do what? Grow strangely dim. Because such joy is timeless. It is never dependent upon who you are, what generation you live in, what your bank account looks like, what your current relationships look like. No. Who the president is, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. You could, we could go on and on, right? Your job, none of that has any power over the faith that is placed in us by the power of God. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the earth. But is this your experience? I mean, is this really your life experience? Is joy like this your life experience? I mean, you know people like that. And you want to be like them, don't you? I do too. May that be true of each and every one of us. It would be those kinds of people that are just overflowing with gladness. Matthew Henry, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. There they were ordered to continue till the Spirit should be poured out upon them. And thither they went accordingly, though it was into the mouth of danger. Thither they went, and there they stayed with great joy. This was a wonderful change and an effect of the opening of their understandings. When Christ told them that He must leave them, sorrow filled their hearts. Yet now that they see him go, they're filled with joy. Being convinced at length that it was expedient for them and for the church that he should go away to send the comforter. Note, the glory of Christ is the joy, the exceeding joy of all true believers, even while they are here in this world. You can live in the house of misery and always have the heart of joy. Now that is overcoming. That's what it means to be more than conquerors. And that is available to you and me. So we can love. We can love everywhere we go. All the time. Joyfully. What do they do next? Disciples continually are in the temple praising and blessing God. So not only are they in Jerusalem, but they're in the temple. They're not hiding out in fear. And they are not quiet in a corner of the temple seeking to go unobserved. 
That's not what they're doing. Now, they did have an upper room they could go to, but they're in the temple. They're praising and blessing God in their joy over their Messiah. The temple had not been destroyed yet. The old covenant was not yet obsolete. It had not yet totally passed away. It was passing away. Where had Jesus gone? That's where they went. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem. I don't see anywhere where he told them they had to go to the temple. Maybe he did. Where'd they go? They went to the temple. I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of God. That's how they're feeling. They want to be in the temple because that's where God's presence is. Think of it. They're there praising and blessing God in their joy over their Messiah. Now that's going to have an appearance and a sound to it. Like I said, they're not quiet in the corner. Note how powerful it is to walk in the blessing of Christ. Look at these men, these women, how their lives were completely turned upside, uh, upside down in less than six weeks. Even though all of the threats against them remain in place. You notice that there's no, no mention of any external changes here. I mean, the lie is still circulating that they had stolen his body, right? <clears throat> but there they are. Day by day, hour by hour, continually, we're told, praising and blessing God. Matthew Henry says, they abounded in acts of devotion while they were in expectation of the promise of the Father. They attended the temple service at the hours of prayer. God had not as yet quite forsaken it, and therefore they did not. They were continually in the temple as their master was when he was at Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, and so should we. Temple sacrifices they knew were superseded by Christ's sacrifice. But the temple songs, they joined in. Now for us, note this from Henry. While we are waiting for God's promises, we must go forth to meet them with our praises. So waiting is not inactivity. Waiting for the Holy Spirit is not inactivity. It is a going forth with our praises to meet His promises. Praising and blessing God is work that is never out of season. And nothing better prepares the mind for the receiving of the Holy Ghost than holy joy and praise. Fears are silenced, sorrows sweetened and laid, and hopes are kept up. Praise be to God. Have you had your doubts solved? Have you been rebuked by the Holy Spirit of God because of your hardness of heart and unbelief? In what his word says? Has that happened to you? I hope it has. Don't even sit there and try to convince me that you've never read the Bible and go, Whoa, what was that all about? Or that there are parts of the Bible that you don't agree with. You just don't believe what it says. You want to argue with the Bible. You need to have your doubts solved. All of us do. Are you walking in the blessing of Christ? Would you think that that's an accurate description of your life when you look at how these disciples were living at this time? Because that's what it means, right? That's what's happening. These are fruits of walking in the blessing of Christ. These are the fruits of knowing that God's favor is upon you and that He loves you with an everlasting love and that your sins have been forgiven. Of knowing who Christ is. So is that you? Are you worshiping Him? Is, is worship a, a, natural, a natural thing for you? How about obedience to God? 
Is obedience the mark of your life? And courage? Or, or can fear keep you from holding on to God's testimonies? Can fear keep you from walking a life of love? And, and as you're walking in these points, I mean, listen, God takes, if you will, as we pick up our cross and follow him, he, he'll take you to the top of Mount Moriah along the way. God didn't need to, God knew what Abraham would do. Abraham didn't know what Abraham would do. But, you know, he said, hey, we're going to go worship God and we'll be back. Is that your joyful, confident attitude when God calls you to obey him and do something that looks like it's going to lead to your death or your loss of income or a loss of relationship? It looks like loss is all you're going to get when you obey God. Do you courageously go and joyfully do it? I'm not saying we go and seek loss. You understand that, right? We're not going to, like, okay, here, sign here if you want to go with me and we'll all be martyrs. Right? Go sign here so we can go get arrested and persecuted. That's not what I'm saying to you. But as God calls you to walk and to follow him, if you're in his blessing and the worship and the praise and the gladness of your heart is present, then you're going to obey him in in courage and joy, even in the face of all those threats. Because that's what they did. And we have the same promises to us. And would the word continual be a right word for you? Continual obedience of praise and worship. Could that be, is there there that steadiness in your life that is is bound up in that word continual? Because there's a waiting that we all go through. And the ten days that these disciples were waiting on the Holy Spirit, this is describing what they were like during that ten days while they were waiting in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and I mentioned it before, you know, we're waiting, we, we long to see the Holy Spirit of God poured out upon us, don't we? Uh, upon us individually, to love Him more, to be these kinds of people who are really naturally overflowing with worship and gladness all the time and obeying him, convicted of sin, repenting, and to see the kingdom of grace expanded all around us, to make connections in your neighborhood, in the neighborhood of the church, and to see our assembly be a light for the gospel in this community, and to to be a part of this kind of work of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's go on in worshiping Jesus. Let's go on in walking in His blessing, remembering who He is, thinking of who He is, not allowing the threats of this world and the disappointments of our lives in the house of misery to tear us down. But instead to be overflowing with gladness and worship and praise continually as we wait for the Holy Spirit of God to bring the victory that's coming. We don't know what it will look like. We don't know when it's coming. But let's just continue to walk in the blessing of Christ and look to Him. And remember that He who ascended from the house of affliction into the house of glory is our forerunner. And we will someday also ascend there and be freed from this life of affliction that we're in right now 
And even as we are together today, we have a little foretaste together of the, the house of glory. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that Jesus Christ has come and died, raised from the dead, taught of the things pertaining the kingdom of God, gave many infallible proofs of his resurrection, ascended to your right hand, where, oh, we praise you, Father, Jesus continues to bless us and continues to command us and continues, Father and Son, the Spirit poured out in us and through us. Bless us, we ask again today, to be those who walk in the blessing of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.